0: Thank you for listening to this Miller Time Media podcast. This interview took place during our Miller Time Live radio program. For information on the program, you can visit our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash millertimeradio. You can also find us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms by searching Miller Time Media. If you do not find us on your favorite podcast platform, not to fear, just send us an email and we'll get it done for you, Outlook.com. Thank you and enjoy. Hi there, everyone. It's Sue Grant Marshall, Reading Matters on Radio Today, 1485 AM. Also going out on DSTV, Channel 869. And we have podcasts, which you can find by going on to Radio Today or the Facebook. Um, or you can go on to Miller Time, because this is Dustin Miller's slot every weekday from 9 12 and on the line from Cape Town it is Cape Town isn't it Tom Eaton where are you
1: (laughs) yes I'm very much in Cape Town Um, and uh, we're having we're having yet another bizarre hot winters so um, today is gloriously warm but yes the middle of Cape Town
0: Ah, oh, um, Tom's latest work. I think this is your seventh or eighth. I've been trying to count them. How how many books have you written, written, Tom?
1: You know, this sounds incredibly blasé, um, but I'm not really sure. I I think I I did a count the other day, and this is either my eighth or my ninth. Um, but it's certainly it's certainly I've done a few. But yeah, yeah this one uh, this one I'm nudging up towards ten.
0: Wow, nudging up towards 10. Okay, so so it's it's a full-time job, Tom, writing these um, satirical books and your articles which go out, my goodness, wow, across South Africa from um, the Times online to Business Day in print and online and to the Daily Dispatch and any, you know, newspapers in Cape Town carrying your column, Tom
1: and um, there aren't uh what well, i was about to say there aren't any newspapers in cape town that carry my column but um you know it's debatable whether that whether there are any english language papers <laughs> left in Cape town um <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not currently interested in cape town uh, which i think there's a lot but yeah that's the story there
0: <laughs> <laughs> i so agree with you on that so in the last the most recent column that I have read of Tom Eaton's it was this past week and it starts off the column I think it's the start it says it's tricky to read the future but after today I think it's a safe bet that nobody in Cyril Ramaphosa's cabinet is ever going to eat a restaurant meal again that doesn't contain at least three pubic hairs and 10 millimetres of spit. And why Tom has written that, I know very well, is because our daughter worked in England in her gap year. (laughs) And that thing about the (laughs) chefs being furious with someone and spitting in their food, etc., is absolutely true. So that's the background (laughs) to Tom Eaton's... (laughs) most recent column now this book tom i must quickly so that everyone can rush out and get it so on the cover it says tom eaton and then is it me or is it getting hot in here and the subtext title is great expectations and boiling frogs in south africa so tom i am fascinated Three days after I'd read this book, I made a point of calling friends and asking them about the boiling frog, and none of them knew what you've written in your book. So start off with that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I think, I think you and most of your listeners will know the, the, uh, the analogy that we keep hearing, or the, or the parable, the metaphor that we keep hearing in South Africa you know, we're, we're frogs in a pot boiling to death and, and you know, there's this there's a story that dates back many, many decades that if you put a frog in a in a pot of water on a stove, I don't know why anyone would do that, but if you did <laughs> and you slowly turned up the heat, um, as the as the water gets hotter and hotter and in fact almost begins to boil, the frog doesn't really move. It sort of flops around a bit in the pot, so it it hangs in the water passively, but it doesn't try to get out of the pot. And Suddenly, the water boils and the frog dies. So, this is an analogy that is very attractive to many people because it seems to illustrate a kind of helpless, despairing political situation as well. That um, you know, one doesn't move until it's too late. Yes. Uh, you know, and so I, you know, we've all been to that dinner party or that briar where somebody goes, "Man, it's like being a pot in a frog. Man, you just boiled this and it's too late." So yes. The point of the book was to sort of address these anxieties, but when I when I actually looked into this frog-in-a-pot story, um, one thing jumped up and became very apparent, and that is that um, it's just not true. Uh, there, was, there were science, science experiments done on frogs in, in, hot, in hot water, <laughs> in boiling water. <laughs> yes. And it is true that um, there were frogs that, uh, that passively lay in the water, hunted, boiled, and died. Um, but the sort of salient point that has been slowly kind of removed over the many years the story's been doing around and I think is the the central point to this is that the frogs that just lay in the water and died had had their brains surgically removed um, by the scientists Yes. so you know that's sort of um, that seems fairly obvious you know if you have your brain removed you're not really going to be doing much Yes. Um, whereas the frogs that had not had their brains removed uh, got the hell out. You know, they <laughs> all were uh, little frogs and said, "Oh, no, thank you, this is not for me." Yes. So, as I say in the book, uh, this is not a, a call for people to, to flee South Africa at all. Yes. Um, but it is certainly a, a, a reflection that the stories we tell ourselves and the, the appeals to science we make about our political situation are not necessarily accurate or true. Um, yes, you know, South Africa is feeling quite anxious. Yes, our economy's a mess, and I certainly wouldn't begrudge anybody for for wanting to go somewhere else or, or change their life. Yes, um, but I, you know, look, I try to encourage people to just uh, think about things in a slightly different way. Yes, um, and so in that regard, you know, I talk about the boiling frogs and, and suggest that well, you know, we're not we aren't really frogs in a pot. We're just people trying to make sense of of a crazy time, and if I can help them. slightly differently about it well then that's
0: job done and it's fantastic tom because you do and um i love the chapter that starts well i don't know how you halto or halter or it was halt and then you added you know naught to it and what you have said here Mm. written here is this book is one of opinions rather than prescriptions i would not presume to tell you how to live your life i wrote it as an attempt to figure out for myself different ways of reacting to our national narratives and in the hope that you will find in these pages some new perspectives perhaps even solace. And you know, that word solace, coming from a satirist, which you so brilliantly are, I found fascinating. And then you go on into this HALTO, and it's an acronym for, HALT stands for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, and Tired. And then you illustrate, and then um, oh at the end so um, you illustrate each one mm. of the H you know hungry and it's quite fascinating Tom the way you say that sometimes when you have felt very down and exhausted and listless and then you suddenly think oh have I eaten <laughs> mm. and yeah. then it seems so obvious
1: yeah. so but you know, that's, that's yeah? an interesting example you know when I when I discovered that acronym um, it was it was from somebody who worked in a um, in a recovery clinic with, with recovering um, various you know addicts, and it it seems it seems too simple to be true. You know that was my first response to it. when somebody said, well, you know if you are if you ask going into these self destructive feelings or uh, feelings that you know make you make you uh, behave in a certain way that isn't very helpful to you, you know just ask yourself, yes. are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you feeling lonely? Are you feeling tired? And just sorting out one of those things makes such a radical difference. Yeah. Um, and often, you know, we're we're a little bit too arrogant to believe it. You know, as adults, we we, we resist the idea that just having a banana can actually make you feel better. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it, it makes us feel a bit like babies or toddlers. <laughs> but yes. sometimes it's not that the world is going to hell and everything's falling apart and nobody understands. It's just that you need a banana. Yes. Um, so I thought it was it was. <laughs> worth saying in that chapter. Although of course the point of that chapter was to add the, the O to H A L T and the O, you know, as, as readers will discover stands for online. Yes. Uh, being you know, spending too much time online. Yes. Which I which I describe as I uh, think one of the one of the potentially very bad mood altering things one can do. Yes. Uh, but yeah, there are there are fairly simple solutions to those situations.
0: And um, so then, uh, you know, you go on in the book, because, you know, you think, well, I, you know, this is one person, (laughs) the royal one, tends to think, (laughs) Tom, one tends to think that satirists are you know, cold, bold people who... And at one stage in this book, because you, just to quickly summarize your story, born, brought up in Cape Town, went to Westerford School, which is an amazing school. Then you went to UCT, and you actually did Brave You, a creative writing course with J.M. Kutsia. And furthermore, you actually... (laughs) Got it with distinction. How amazing!
1: <laughs> well, well, thank you. Yeah, it was it was quite a thing. Um, it was a long time ago now, so I sort of am a bit dim, dim on the on the details, but it, it remains with me as a as a fascinating time. Um, and and yeah, it was a, it was. I mean, I can be a little bit self deprecating and say that I did try and guide myself to university following the easiest options all the way. You know, I, I, if the choice was old English, chaucer and textual analysis or writing a funny short story, um, I would always go for the funny short story. But it did, it did lead me to, um, to uh, you know, with, with uh, John Kutier, which was, you know, which was a, a wonderful experience. Yes,
0: yes. And, you know, I'm just being <laughs> um, a bit cynical here because, you know, James could see has got such a, a a reputation for being cold and, and all the rest of it, which I know is not um, that well-deserved because someone I know well knows him well. Um, so, uh, Tom, obviously a lot in the book is to do with politics, which is what you know, we're trying to survive at this stage, is the political situation Mm. in South Africa where, for instance, and this show is going out on a Tuesday, but last Thursday, Cyril Ramaphosa going on to speak to the nation, and I thought, oh, well, it's just... It's too exhausting. It's going to be more of the same. Um, you know, my daughter left school some years ago. So, you know, I know it's going to be school. So anyway, I love uh, one of your um, uh, pieces, which I think was written. It was written, um, yeah, just in the last week or so it went out. And this is how you start. As breakups went, it was amicable, perhaps because our feelings hadn't been particularly strong in the first place. Admittedly, I had felt a touch of ramaphoria at the beginning. How could I not? But it never blossomed into full infatuation or ramaphilia. Now and then I wondered if I should take it to the next level, and you go on about the first weeks of the lockdown, and you're so funny. You know, when you say he looked at the camera steadily and said we would overcome, and I remembered how it was at the beginning. <laughs> You, in those few short sentences, encapsulate what so many of us have experienced, which is a sense of well, maybe betrayal is a strong word. What word? What word would you use then? Disillusionment.
1: Yeah, I think disillusionment and disappointment, um, and and underlying both of those, a powerful, largely unspoken confusion. Um, you know, I think that, that these are incredibly confusing times. Yes. Um, they're unprecedented in, in my lifetime, perhaps in your lifetime, uh, certainly in your lifetime. I mean, the last time there was this global pandemic was, you know, 1918, 1919. Thank you, and, Tom. Um, thank
0: you. I'm not that old.
1: <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> and and well, no, I was thinking more along the lines of sort of global crises of you know Cuban missile crisis and that sort of thing. Yes. But certainly this this thing of of the world shutting down um, is is unprecedented. Yes. And I think that being being um, uh, you know herd animals as we are, this is terribly upsetting to us on a on a very profound level. Yes. Um, and so we're all making the best of it. You know, we're figuring out what we think and what we don't think, and we deciding who to be angry with, and who to blame. Um, and obviously, the the, um, the uh, inconsistency from government has been has been enraging and, and disappointing. But it also just been very upsetting, you yes. know, on a basic emotional level. Um, so my my relationship with Ramaphosa over these months has been one of. you know, In the early days, I was I was desperate for leadership. I was desperate to know that there is a plan, that there are people um, who know how to execute that plan, that they're listening to experts um and in the in those first few few briefings on tv you know there was a strong sense of okay good you know you're listening to scientists there's, there's a plan and then when things started becoming uh, a little more inconsistent then suddenly the anxiety grew and then when we when we just flopped over into into outright absurdity yes. um, i think that was where the anxiety ratcheted right up you know when it became illegal to walk by yourself on a beach because you might get COVID. And it was legal to go to church or a casino. Yes. Um, I think, you know, and, and that's when I think most people just gave up emotionally on on the process and just yes. said, well, you know, every man and woman for themselves. Yes. So um, yeah, I think I think our, our collective relationship with Ramaphosa has gone from uh, hope to, <laughs> to um, sort of stoic hope to dogged <laughs> hoping and now uh, just Tom. disappointment really.
0: Yes. Yes, I think uh, disappointment definitely is the right way. Now, the whole book is not about politics. It's about all kinds of things. And, you know, Tom, your knowledge is just absolutely unbelievable. I mean, for instance, I think most people, the story of the boiling frog, which is quoted by everyone from pop, pop, politicians to academics to goodness knows what else and what do you do you go and find out the real heart or the brain of the matter no you now you do all kinds of um what can i say yeah sticking to the frog analogy you know dissecting our social structures and one of the chapters i absolutely love is that where you divide people up into various groups all with these fascinating (laughs) (laughs) there are opulents and non opulents and there are people who um who are rich but don't know that they're rich Because they don't just want, you know, three houses and a yacht. They want a jet. They want two or three islands. And so you go. And the part that absolutely, I absolutely love is the one about SUVs, four by fours and um, the the character, which I'm not, I think it's you in the book, lives in a part of Cape Town, which I was there for seven years on the Argus Um, quaint little street oak trees growing up through the tar that you've got to navigate, except you can't navigate them when you're in a huge, huge car and the character in this story is trying to fetch one of his children from school and they're all these SUVs, 4x4s trying to get past each other (laughs) and in this particular one as I watch the SUVs waddle up onto pavements in their futile efforts to get around each other it seems to me that they bring no comfort to the people driving them and you go on to say in fact the people driving them look confused even scared and Tom so where do you where do you get this from I mean I agree with you it's hilarious but what made you write about that?
1: Well, I mean that chapter, um, you know, is about is about wealth and and, and the rich. Um, and I I should first just say that I, I owe my wife a, a debt of gratitude because I told her, you know, oh, I'm going to write a chapter about the rich, and I'm going to you know tease them about the SUVs and this sort of thing. And then and then she said, oh, "Well, hang on, you know, which rich are you talking about? Because you know <laughs> you're rich." And I said, "Am I?" And she said, "Yes, of course you're rich. You know, you you have a job, you have a home, you have <laughs> medical <laughs> cover." Um, you know, you are richer than the, than the vast majority of humans on the planet, and so I, I had to take a step back and and realize, oh well, actually, you know, there are there are different sort of species of rich, which is why I kind of broke, broke them all down into those humorous kind of biological categories. Yes, but, I mean, I suppose the the, the root of this came from, as I say in the book, you know, I live in this in this rather tranquil area in the city bar with lots of little narrow old streets, but because it's it's quite gentrified and and there's a certain kind of Socioeconomic class that wants to live here, the, the car of choice is the SUV, and yes. it causes the most ridiculous traffic situation. So I keep having to reverse up roads because <laughs> there's an SUV coming up the other way, and the road is too narrow for it. Yes. Um, I keep seeing them sort of, you know, sort of nudging past each other like like hippos in a very small car. <laughs> um, and and you know, there's this there's this cliché, you know, I suppose we've got some fairy tales and stories and little about how. You know the king, the king and the aristocrats ride past in their carriages, looking so smug and happy and, and sure of themselves. Yes. But the people in S. E. D. Don't. They look anxious and thought and worried and confused. <laughs> and I started thinking, why is that? And then, of course, it, it gave rise to the rest of the chapter about our assumptions about the world and expectations about the world yes um, but yeah i think i was just tickled by the, the the sight of these people you know clutching these enormous steering wheels and peering down from these high windows but looking so miserable Yes, um, I, yeah i just started wondering why
0: yes tom you go on actually it's in the same um <clears throat> book you uh, uh same chapter but you're talking about you know these very um wealthy people and 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 then you get into <clears throat> how we're we going to solve the problems of the world and the problems of the world most of us think are due to <clears throat> overpopulation. And then you talk about in fact the reverse is happening. We're not Um, going to be overpopulated in about, oh, I think by 2050 even. um, Japan's population is, you right falling at a rate of half a million a year. In parts of Central and Eastern Europe, bears and wolves are cautiously moving back into places they last ruled a thousand years ago as rural towns and villages empty. China's relaxed its one child um you know you could only have one child and then you give all the figures and the why i'm bringing this up is because i'm so fascinated at how deeply and how much you read Tom, you know, I just asked you, if you watched Cyril, you know, I'm I'm recording this on a Friday, and last night Cyril was on about education. Cyril Ramaphosa, that's another point you make. Nothing escapes that sharp wit of yours where you say that people, because we were all suffering from uh, Ramaphoria, we just call him Cyril, (laughs) you know, and so here I go. And and Tom... Um, you know, and and you're making the point that, um, well, never mind, I'm talking about how, how much you know, do you feel you've got to watch every single news broadcast, read every paper, have read every encyclopedia, live on Wikipedia. How do you do it?
1: No, luckily I don't have that urge. Um, and I think I'm making peace with the fact that I... I have a certain set of opinions. Um, I don't claim to be uh I don't claim to be objective. You know, I, I take a lot of flack on, on social media from people who don't like my opinions, uh, who say, Oh, but you're a journalist, you should be objective. Um, and my reply is always no, I'm not a journalist, I'm a columnist. I'm exactly. an opinion columnist. Yes. And what people want to read or what I offer people are my opinions. And that is a like anyone, it's a set uh, collection of beliefs and thoughts and feelings about the world and um, which gets in my own way. You know, yes. I I, only, I read probably no more or less than, than most people and certain things stick in my memory and I do think I have quite a good memory. So, you know, I, I recall strange news reports from, you know, five or six years ago. Yes, um, but I think that um, I think that I just certain things just stick. You know, we all have a kind of confirmation bias in the world and that we, we feed our world view and, and reject things that don't fit with the world to you. So, you know, when you when you when you read a story of, that that pleases you, it goes in. And when you read something that is just awful or, or doesn't fit with your world to you, it it, goes, it stays up. And yeah. we're seeing that at the moment in the world. You know, I think the the huge, huge sort of ideological splits between people um are being fed so so um urgently by the different media we consume. You know, nobody's, nobody's reading the same thing anymore. You know, there was a time when we all read the same newspapers and we all watched the same TV news. But now, thanks to the internet, there are thousands of different sources of news, ranging from uh, what I consider reliable, you know, fairly trustworthy, fairly um, rigorously sourced news, right through to, to crazy conspiracy nonsense, and all presents itself as equally valid. Um, and and all of it sticks somewhere, you know. Yes. I'm just, I feel fortunate that luckily the crazy conspiracy stuff doesn't stick to my brain, yes. um, but I understand that it sticks to other people's brains. Yes. Um, so yeah, I think I'd, uh, my sources are just um, are just the world. Of course, as soon as an idea arrives that I find interesting, I do tend to research it a little bit, but not again, not very rigorously. Um, so you know, for instance, this thing of overpopulation, I I'd always heard. You know that was the standard, the standard explanation for everything. Um yes. Oh, you know, there are too many people in the world. And then, and some years back, I started hearing a different view that actually, it's not too many people; it's too much, too much consumption. Yes. And you know, the, the consumption of, of, uh, in fact, I read somewhere, the consumption of of two new, two middle class New Yorkers without children. Yes. Um, is sort of more than an entire African village. You know, in some parts of Africa, So it's... It's about rich and poor. It's not about the number of people on the planet. Yes. Um, and then I started researching that, and obviously, you know, found, found the, the facts that I was looking for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's the story there. Okay.
0: And then coming back to the A and C, oh, and we're running out of time. There are two things here, <laughs> which I mean, when I read this, I just howled with laughter. Um, you know, you were uh, anyway that after a whole you contextualize this obviously but the board sentences the anc i realized is not a government doing a very bad job it is a money-making scheme doing a very good job and i mean and then i go you i'm i'm hopping several uh chapters and then you have the scene The Fenta scene with 100 million rand. And you describe how a Fenta trailer, I think most of us know what that is. um, And at dawn, they're men packing 100 million in notes into a Fenta trailer. At dusk, they do it again and they haven't missed a day in 26 years. So that gives such a brilliant, that to me is the art of helping people understand how, when you call this, um, the beginning of this chapter, Robbing Us Blind, you know, that visual image of all those notes being stuffed into a trailer (laughs) and taken off by men in dark suits with dark glasses, that's so powerful, Tom. that's, That's an art.
1: Well, thank you for for saying that. But uh, you know, and I think that is something that I can contribute as a writer. Um, I don't I don't have a very uh, you know my my thoughts have been said by everybody else. You know, the, my opinions are shared by many people. But, writer, you do have a the ability to to um, picture, to present pictures to people. And I think in this country, with especially with corruption and wastage, we have become completely numb to the figures. You know, yes. A billion rand is meaningless. We can't picture a billion, but you certainly. Can't picture as I write about it, in that chapter the two trillion rand since since the dawn of democracy that has disappeared whether yes. through wastage or just theft or just evaporated. Yes. So you know, I thought, well, what what does two trillion rand look like? You know, if you if <laughs> yes. stuffed it into a trailer, how many center trailers would you need stuff with two hundred rand notes <laughs> and where from? Um, So I think, yeah, it's useful for people to to picture these things to
0: really understand the the, the crisis or the scale of the crisis. Yes, yes. Well, I've been, I am chatting to Tom Eaton, E-A-T-O-N, his book, Is It Me or Is It Getting Hot in Here? There's the boiling frog analogy, which we now know the truth of, thanks to Tom, and it's published by Tafelberg. Depending on where you buy this book, it's going to cost you about 300 Rand in print and of course online Amazon take a lot kalahari etc i don't know some of them are not um, operational anymore but it's it's less and if you want to get a really good grasp of what we're living through at the moment tom's written um, a chapter at the beginning he squeezed it in just before this book went to the press which included the situation we're in now with covid and i just wish the book had come out a little bit later, so you could have got stuck into COVID, but then something else would have happened. So Tom Eaton, <laughs> this book is absolutely perfect for anyone who has got locked down. Blues, and this will cheer you up first of all, because you'll laugh, and that's such good medicine. And secondly, because Tom draws, writes, paints, whatever word you want to use, these incredible pictures of where we are. So Tom Eaton, thanks very much for chatting to me, and I wait thank with you. great anticipation for your next book.: Thanks Beautiful. Tom.: well,
1: Thank you so much for chatting to
0: me.: Hi there, so it's Sue Grant Marshall. back again. Reading Matters, Radio Today, 1485 AM. I'm going to talk about two books now. One's a children's book. I have brown skin and curly hair, which I absolutely love. And then the second is 100 Speeches That Roused the World. And if I have time, I'm going to talk about a brand new super recipe book. But we'll see how we go. So the first one, I have... Brown Skin and Curly Hair is written by Karen Turnison illustrated by Charles Gibbons and what I love about this book Charles Gibbons the illustrator has said to all the children who were perhaps confused about their heritage but have now found a tool this book in other words that will not only bring understanding but will water the seeds of acceptance we all yearn for As people, so what is the book about? I think I've given you some tips about what it could be. So it starts off. Everyone in this family looks different. Dad's tall and dark. Mum has light brown hair with green eyes. Some of the children have straight hair. Others have curls. People regard them curiously, until one day one of the children musters the courage to speak up proudly about her identity after she learns where she comes from and why she looks different and it is absolutely gorgeous it starts off obviously i have brown skin and curly hair and then we're taken through <clears throat> the different members of this uh, family um, she says, she, you know, um, her sister's hair is straight and her skin is kind of fair. My brother's curls are tight and his skin is really dark. My daddy says we're coloured and we're from El Dorado Park. So as you can hear, this is a rhyming booklet. And then... She goes into with some funny little things in between about a mum tickling her tummy, and then you see in this illustration the family, and and others looking at the family with bemused um, question marks on their faces. Why has this one got curls and that one straight hair? Why is this one so dark? And that one, so fair. And then the little girl goes on to say that her daddy says, it's my great-grandmother from St Helena's Bay. She crossed the Atlantic Ocean on a cold July day. I'm told she was Creole with long hair, jet black. And then she goes on to the great-great-grandfather. And he came from... Croatia looking for gold. And then it has the same refrain at the bottom. It matters not what kind of ancestors you've got. Slave or free, don't you see? You don't need this to look the same to be a family. And then the father, Cape Malay from Indonesia, and so they go. And then the mama of this little girl says that her hair comes from her Griqua ancestors of old. And then there's a glorious, glorious illustration of members of the Griqua hunting with bows and arrows from the Koi Koi. Um, And then they go back to the same thing and then... And then someone asks, and your eyes, why are they that green color? And mummy says, it's from my grandmother. She lived in Potchefstroom and was an Afrikaner. My mum was a seamstress. My dad was a farmer. They all had green eyes, and that's the answer. So, you know, for kids who are asking questions like that, and increasingly these days, for instance, in my In my family, we have a niece who adopted, uh, she and her husband, two um, black children, a a dearest little boy and and a girl. And so for them, this might be a useful book. It goes on and on about all um, families and where they come from and why they have different characteristics. So... As I said, it takes children through the unique and often untold history of South Africa, explaining how a mixed-race heritage can contribute to their physical differences and yet they can still be part... Of one family. Now, depending on where you buy this book, I was quite astounded actually because I I, I Googled it and I see that exclusive books, it's a gorgeous glossy print, one of those flatties, as they're called in the trade. Um, 134 at exclusive books, 160 rands at take a lot, and 95 at loot. So there you go, take your choice. Then the second book I mentioned, A Hundred Speeches That Roused the World by Colin Salter, S-A-L-T-E-R. And I'll tell you now, oh, by the way, I didn't tell you that I have brown skin and curly hair, is published by Jacana, <clears throat> fantastic publishing house. And they published that book and they do publish many in that vein and lots of them for children so if you're ever looking for a similar book just ask for jacana children's books and then colin salter's book is published by batsford b-a-t-s-f-o-r-d you won't have it's a big um hardback book and on its cover obviously it's got people like our very own nelson mandela Martin Luther King Jr. Barack Obama um, King George the 6th uh, Queen Elizabeth the Evita Peron and so they uh, obviously Churchill and so they go <clears throat> excuse my dog barking but I I don't want to um, give up here what I'm doing talking so I just hope she doesn't carry on so now Colin Salter writes in this book that speeches have always been the greatest form of advocacy. The speaker's careful choice of words, phrases, and sentences to persuade his or her audience is as creative as an act of the poets or the playwrights. And that we know, of course, from Shakespeare, who is quoted endlessly and for very good reasons. So Colin Salter says... That Martin Luther King Jr.'s instinctive feel for rhythm and dynamics, born of the gospel music of his church, made his speeches some of the greatest ever given in the modern age. And of course, in the aftermath of the killing, <coughs> excuse me, of George um, Floyd in America, he is quoted more and more, and. Uh, uh, Conan Salter goes on to say, all the speech writers in the world can't help you speak in public, but a charismatic speaker can turn an average speech or a difficult moment of history into a triumph of rhetoric. However, he warns, in the wrong hands, such charisma is not without danger. Adolf Hitler was a—he m- mesmerized his audiences. However, abhorrent. His ideas were. So he opens the book um, with Winston Churchill in contemplative pose. He's got one hand on his waist, as he so often did, and the other holding a cane. And opposite him, a full-page colour picture of John F. Kennedy in that famous speech in Berlin at the Berlin Wall, which divided two halves of Germany and a great deal of the world. Then... There is a vita Peron, and um yes the no, i won 't tell you now how the book ends because it is extraordinary. I will tell you now, let me flip 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 um well Truman, of course uh, some of the uh, greatest speeches have been um by him and Frank. And Franklin D. Roosevelt, his famous speech, The Only Thing We Have to Fear is Fear Itself. And my goodness, in the time of COVID, doesn't that ring true? Then we have Barack Obama. Well, I'm leaping around, of course. Barack Obama's Yes, We Can speech. And then <clears throat> the incredible one by Malala um, Yousafzai, Yusuf, Yusuf The right of education for every child i think you'll recall that she was shot in an effort to keep her silent about education for girls and to the horror of the people who tried to silence her shooting her on a school bus and leaving her for dead she um, she was flown to England and nursed back to health and went on to talk about education for girls and how important it is. I'm not going to mention in any of um, Hitler's uh, speeches. There's <clears throat> interestingly Richard, Nick- Richard Nixon's announcement of his resignation. Then Nelson Mandela. They've got. Two or three speeches of his in the book, and an ideal for which I am prepared to die is one of them. And then (laughs) John Lennon, if you're of a certain age, you'll remember this. He apologized in a speech for saying that he and the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. So that's an interesting um, one that has caught my eye. And then, of course, they're ones going right, right back into um, the ages. I thought it was fascinating um, to read, and that I thought I know, Elon Musk's speech. He actually gave it in Australia. He presented his Mars ambitions in Adelaide. And a key plank of Musk's approach to space travel, he explained, is cost and reusability. It's really crazy, he complained, that we build these sophisticated rockets and then crash them every time we fly. It's mad, he said. And he showed delegates film of some of the 16 consecutive you. <clears throat> Flights of the reusable Falcon 9 rocket. They've returned to Earth not just on runways like NASA's space shuttles, but vertically emulating takeoff in reverse. It will literally land with so much precision that it will land back on its launch mounts, said Elon Musk. And do you know, I was speaking about his mother, May Musk's, Book last week, A Woman Makes a Plan. And a friend of mine from London called me today to say that the Times of London had a feature which he then emailed me on May Musk's book. And I spoke about it at length last week. So I'm very excited that I beat the Times of London to May Musk. The book of um, speeches, a hundred speeches. Um, is <clears throat> ended off, to my mind, very, very powerfully by Oprah Winfrey in a speech that she made at the Golden Globes Awards ceremony just two years ago in 2018, and it was about her um, her rape. And the trial and how she felt about it and how she was found as she writes in this book naked her dress pulled up right um, above her uh, head she was found behind a dumpster which must be a rubbish um, you know what what you carry rubbish around in the message there from the rapist it said uh, in this uh, trial that she was penetrated um, and the the rapist's name is here in the book. But am I looking for it? Yes, I am. Well, never mind. But what happened to her um, is that she actually passed out. And the people in the trial, the um, four, you know, the defense, obviously, she was the um, accuser said that because she had passed out, she couldn't remember anything, so the trial was over before it began. And please get this book or Google Oprah Winfrey's speech. Their time is up, and she's talking about men who brutalize women. And that's why I'm ending reading matters today with that speech because of what women and children are going through in south africa today we all need to read oprah winfrey's brave brave speech and know as she says i want all the girls watching here this was at the golden globes here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon so I hope that New Day comes soon for South Africa. It's a 100 Speeches That Roused the World. It's published. I'm not sure who's handling it in South Africa, but you will definitely get this at any good bookstore. Published by Baxford. Cheers from me, Sue Grant Marshall, and Reading Matters on Radio Today.